Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome back. Thanks for joining us for another episode in Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. This is your first time joining us. Thanks for coming by. I definitely saw a spike in the numbers this past week. Also want to thank everyone who liked our Facebook page as well as follows us on Twitter now at Snapshots In. I'm looking forward to interacting with many of you. Definitely saw the numbers are growing, so it's, it looks like we're doing something right, and I'm glad that uh, word's getting around about the podcast. I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to share more interviews with everybody and also learn more about people who listen to this show. As I say every week, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. Please join us as we relive the hockey highlight reel. I will never ask for a dollar out of your pocket, but if you like what you hear and want to do something, please share on social media, tell a friend about us, or you know what? Give us a five-star review on iTunes. So we're going to go ahead and air an episode recorded with Alan Hangslaben. A lot of you might not know who Alan is. He was a member of the Hartford Whalers in the 70s. He also played for the Washington Capitals. I originally met Alan when I was refing one of the Caps Washington Capitals alumni games, and I'd done some research on him beforehand. Kind of at the time, the podcast was an idea of something I wanted to do, and I looked him up and I read a little bit about him, and I was really like intrigued by his story. This guy was voted Mr. Whaler in a contest that included 17,000 fans. And of no disrespect to Alan when I say this, but I wasn't really that surprised when he won the award. I was thinking to myself, you know, 17,000 fans, he was pretty popular. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess he won the award. But then I realized who was on this team in this contest. He was up against some of the most popular hockey players, really not just of that time, but of all time. You had Dave Keon, former Maple Leaf great, Jack Carlson, incredibly popular guy in the league. And oh, by the way, some guy that a few of you might have heard of named Gordy Howe and all of his sons. And yet Alan beat all these guys. I wanted to know more. I wanted to hear about Alan Hangslaben. I want to know how he became the most popular player on the New England Whalers. Side note, throughout this entire show, I'm probably going to call the New England Whalers the Hartford Whalers at least multiple times. So apologies in advance for that. But in order to find out more, and I went up to him and I told him this. I said, hey, I knew you were Mr. Whaler. I'd like to tell that story. Is there any way you'd be willing to do an interview? And that's pretty much all I had said. And Alan being so nice was like, yeah, sure. You know, I owe it to the game. Hockey's been so good to me. I'd love to pass it on to other people. And, you know, while we might have some older fans that are reliving these memories, I'm hoping that we're getting some newer fans as well that are hearing about these guys for the first time and maybe what hockey was like back in the 70s. As you guys know, we typically choose a certain time period in a player's career so we can get as in-depth as possible. So for Alan's interview, we did his final year and what turned out to be the final year of the World Hockey Association. For those of you that don't know what the World Hockey Association was, it was a rival league to the NHL back in the 70s. The league had a huge impact on hockey history, though, from a free agency standpoint, as well as bringing many Europeans over. There's a great book out there called The Rebel League, The Short and Unruly History of the World Hockey Association by Ed Wiles. It was published in 2005. It gives a great history of the league, as well as some of the funny stories that took place among players on different teams, etc. The WHA is also, of course, where Wayne Gretzky got his start. And we touch on that a little bit in the interview. During my research, I actually found a great picture in the Hartford Courant with Alan Hangslave and smashing Wayne into the boards. He also, in part one of the interview, talks about some of his teammates, such as Ricky Lay. And of course, you talk about Gordie Howe and Gordie Howe's sons. They had all played for the Arrows the season before and had now come over to the Hartford Whalers. We also talk about some of the trends that are going on in the league, you know, guys getting paid big bucks, things like that. 
We also talked about how the WHA differed from the NHL, as well as what some of the players thought of the differences, as well as the competition between the two leagues. The end of the interview, in my opinion, is my favorite part of the interview. So no matter what, make sure you hear that. Alan tells a great story that just made me laugh. Anyways, sit back, relax, and let's start the week off right with an episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. So you graduated from the University of North Dakota and were picked in the fourth round by the NHL and in the WHA draft, you were picked in the fourth round as well. What were you, what did you originally know about the WHA? It was a league still in its infancy. Well, it was, um, I guess the only thing I really knew that it was a professional league, you know, that was right underneath of the NHL that my dream was always to play in the NHL, you know, ever since I was a little boyhood or, in, you know, I guess really young skating on a ditch in Northern Minnesota. That was my, you know, my ice time was we had like mm-hmm. a six foot by 75 foot ditch that went up our driveway that I was able to, you know, skate on, I guess from July 6th until <laughs> the middle of, um, you know, the spring, you know, up. but, um, it, it was whatever, but it was the league, the league, it was NHL and I got drafted by Montreal and this little country boy, couldn't speak French, and his middle name wasn't Pierre, so he had no intention <laughs> of going <laughs> of going up into you know Quebec, you know, or Montreal in that area. So, and New England, you know, it was a great opportunity to play in the states. You end up heading to New England. There's already talk in 1977 about there being a possible merger with the NHL. That merger doesn't go through. What was your reaction when you heard that there were possible mergers in the works? Just just wondering if I was going to be good enough to, to make the NHL at that time. I had been, you know, with Hartford for five, you know, five years anyway, and had been playing, you know, uh, a regular shift every, every night, you know, all the way along. You know, and I was just, I guess it was just, the anticipation of playing in the NHL, a boyhood dream, and also being able to meet the you know standards or qualifications of an NHL hockey player. And when it doesn't go through, are you disappointed, or is it just, hey, I'll play another season in the WHA. I'm good with that. Um, I'll play another league or another season in the uh, the WHA. It was you know it wasn't my big money, but it was something that I loved to do. I loved to play the game of hockey. You know it. Now it's a big business. It's complete big business. Then it was the joy of the game. Well, they loved you in Hartford. You won the Frank Kias Memorial Trophy in 77-78. And you also, for the second year in a row, were the Mr. Whaler voted by 17,000 fans in Hartford. What was your relationship like with that city? Their love for me was um, my love for them. Is that I love the city. It was where I grew up. Understandable. Now, that year you guys also played in the AVCO Cup, which is the finals for the WHA. Did the WHA AVCO Cup mean the same thing as the NHL Stanley Cup, or did players look at that differently? I think um, the players uh, looked at it uh, differently because it wasn't, you know, the NHL. It was, you know, an upstart, I guess, league that, you know, that, that, I think that's what the, what the, a lot of the players, the, the, us as a, you know, as a player in the world hockey, thought it was our, you know, the, um, mm-hmm. the Stanley Cup. 
Sure. And you know, we fought and and played just as hard as as if it was the uh, Stanley Cup. But um, it was it, it it was it was great. Is that the first year the team won it? You know, Hartford won it the first year of the of uh, the World Hockey. And then we played against, I guess, the Winnipeg Jets in the finals. Uh, my, I want to say my first, my second year, we played against the Jets in the, in the finals. Correct, correct. The following season, there's some changes in New England, and Bill Deneen is hired as the new head coach. Bill Deneen is the all-time winningest coach in the WHA. What was he like as a bench boss? Uh, we we know him, him, knew him as Foxy. Really, uh, was great behind behind the bench. Bill was well. It was, I guess, pretty easy for him to coach when he had you know the, the likes of Gordy Howe and Marty Howe and Mark Howe. You know all the years that he was in Houston, and then when he brought you know that lineup to Hartford, um, it only boosted everything that we had at present. Why did you guys call him Foxy? I I don't know really the the whole back back of it is that well he was I guess elusive as a fox he would be there and then pretty soon he'd be gone you know he would be you know he was always you never knew where Bill was going to show up at you know and and Bill was always where if we snuck out to go somewhere you know you never knew if he was going to be around that corner and you know walk right straight into him after curfew or. Um, that's, I think that that was the biggest thing with him is Bill was Bill was a, a player's coach. What time was curfew for you guys at the time? Um, it had to be in by midnight. It had to be in by midnight, which you know it was. You know, a big big game, so playoff like that was nine o'clock. But any other time was midnight, and it was no business being out that late anyway. Another newcomer to the team is Andre Larue, who was the all-time leading scorer in the WHA. Andre has the pleasure of playing for five teams that got shut down. What were your experiences like sharing the ice with Andre? Andre Lacroix had come from, you know, I don't know, all these teams. He was a super, super nice, nice guy. He, you know, he was like the, I guess, the epitome of a hockey player. It didn't matter where he went. He played his heart out. And he was always there for the younger guy. Always would, you know, pull the guy off to the side and, you know, and, and give him little pointers or... Even then, the younger guys were younger guys, just coming out of college or just coming out of junior. And they, you know, like I guess the junior hockey players or whatever had been away from home. But you know, you're not away from home like you are when you're you're playing professional sports. Sure. And he had a personal services contract with Ray Kroc, who actually owned the WHA team in San Diego the prior year. Were there lots of these kind of different contracts and strange relationships? I mean, you'd never see anything like that today. I, I yes, there were, and um, I know there, there was a, what what the heck was the guy's name? I think his name was Andy Brown, that played in Indianapolis. Okay, his he was a goaltender, and his contract was that he never had to go on the road. Really, all he did, <laughs> all he did was play home games. I swear to God, he played home games. That's like in the minor leagues where guys don't want to travel, and so they come up with right. the the flu, quote unquote. But I can't believe it was actually in a contract where in a in the you know a top pro league where he didn't have to play. Right. Well, that's what the, you know. I guess when when people were looking down on the you know the world hockey and different things like you know like Derek Sanderson and all the stuff that you know he came out of Boston was a a star. You know, and Gordy or not Gordy, but Bobby's uh, 
winning gold in the Stanley Cup and stuff. And all he did was ride around in his Rolls Royce. I don't think he even went to practice. Did you ever play against Sanderson? No, I did not. He he was he was with Boston, but he was never with Boston. He never. I don't. I don't think that he really played that many games. And I know in the WHA, he was very short lived. He signed a huge contract, and it was interesting because. And this is correct me if I'm wrong. It sounded like he scored that big goal, but really there wasn't any talent. I don't want to say talent, but the talent, the skill necessarily wasn't there to support that contract. Is that? I think that's safe to say. Um, do you agree? Well. I, I, I agree. You know, taking nothing away from Derek Sanderson is sure. that, you know, in order to play with Boston or to play in the NHL, you had to have some credentials from someplace or have the ability to, to, to get there. But um, it's being in, you know, it's just like everything, you know, or like to be, there was a lot of players that were far better than I was. Never got the right, you know, you got to be in the right place at the right time and get your break. Absolutely. It was, um, I was lucky enough to, to make it to Hartford, and the only reason that I got to play was Ted Green broke his hand and allowed me to, you know, to get into the lineup. And once I got into the lineup, they they, they weren't getting me out. I was just say you took the ball and you ran. You didn't even look back. No, I never looked back at all. It was showed up for practice, practiced hard, showed up for the, every game, every. It didn't matter if you were under the weather or whatever. In fact, I was. I, played four games with a broken hand that they said, oh, no, it's just swelled up a little bit. <laughs> Shit, I couldn't even get it in my gloves. And you were a bit of a Swiss Army knife. You never said no to anybody. You you literally did everything. So I know at one point you were playing left wing and you were playing defense. Which position? Correct, yes. It was whatever, they, you know, what, whatever they need, you know, it probably in the long run hurt my career. But, you know, to just to stay into, you know, to, into one position and, you know, it was – it was so hard, you know, like say one night you were up on left wing and now the next night you're back on defense and you're the, the gapping and stuff, you know, it, it, they, they talk about gapping now, you know, hell, we talked about that four years ago, you know, wow. to be able to be up the ice, get up the ice far enough so that you could meet the player and try to stop him before he got in your defensive zone. You know, why give up 60, 70 feet of ice when you could stop him on the way? Is there a position though that you preferred of the two? I started as a defenseman, but it was, uh, you know, I, I loved, you know, the, once I got up on forward, it, it, I loved up there. You know, that if you made a mistake, at least you had, you know, three guys. You had the two defensemen and a goaltender to, to, to cover up for you. When you're on defense, you know, you turn around and go, look out, here they come. But, you know, <laughs> That's an interesting way of looking at it. I've never thought about it that way. During the but, preseason, the New England Weathers play seven exhibition games against NHL teams, including the Islanders, the Blackhawks, and the Washington Capitals. You would never see this today if the NHL would play against the KHL. How was interleague play? I mean, what was that like? The interleague was, I remember we were, one night we played against Philly, and this is when they were the Broad Street Bullies or whatever the hell it was. Sure. We were up in Riviere de Loup in Quebec um, province, and they had all, everybody was playing. They had Moose DuPont, they had Selesky, they had um, Kelly, they had two Kellys, in fact, they had Schultz. And here we are as a, you know, a young upstart team that, you know, it really wasn't even a team yet. We were just a bunch of players that had been, you know, put together and to go up against the, you know, the Broad Street Bullies. And I, I can remember hitting Schultz right at the blue line. I mean, they give him the old, you know, and he chased me all over the ice after that. It was, you know, like all over, you know, he, he couldn't catch me, but 
it was, you know, fend for yourself because nobody was, you know, really, we, we weren't a team yet. Is there anything intimidating in that situation where you're up against the Broad Street Bullies or the Red Hot Islanders as a WHA team? They're another team. They're our competition for the night. Uh, we're only here for one reason, is to win the game. We're not here just to show up. We're out here to win the game and to, you know, to, I guess portray our skills and stuff, you know, and say that, hey, we can compete. We aren't an upstart. We aren't an upstart league, you know, so to speak. We, we can compete with you guys. The preseason's over. You get paired up with Rick Lay, who is Mr. Whaler, one of the only guys that played in the WHA the entire time. He was one of the originals. What was your relationship like with Rick? Ricky was, uh, we called him Pluggy. Because he was, a, he looked like a, you know, a little. Well, he looked like a little fire hydrant. He was about <laughs> as wide as he was tall. And Ricky was a very, very good friend. Not only a good hockey player, but he was a, a very good friend. He he taught me a lot of stuff. You know, like some of it was a lot of it was great and good, but some of it wasn't so good either. But um, no, Plunky was. You're exactly right, Mister Hockey. You know, it, it, he had his, you know, his heart. On a plate every night, every night he he would give 150 percent, 160 percent, and it was a team that you know we we didn't we weren't the outstanding you know team in the league at that time, but um, he he just gave it all you know no matter what we did or whatever you know he was the act he was a captain and a good captain. Well, skipping ahead a few games because we're not going to go through game by game. The New England Whalers play the Indianapolis Racers for the first time of the season. And there's some great footage. There's a great picture of you smearing a young Wayne Gretzky against the boards. Tell me a little bit about a 17-year-old Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky, you know, you 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 heard about him. You you heard all the stories and all the accolades and all the stuff about this. And when you stepped on the ice with him, swear to God, he looked like a toothpick with ears on him. There, <laughs> there was nothing. There was nothing there. And you go and you look at him. You go. Why, what, how can this guy even exist? You know, with you've got, you know, Schultz and you've got, um, all these, you know, like, uh, Gillies and the Islanders and all these other, you know, like players that are, are huge. And I was like 6'1, 195 or something. Oh, yeah. And next to him, you know, I was, I was a giant, but nobody could hit him. Nobody could touch him. Nobody got a piece of him. No matter how hard you tried, you know, you, you could, confront them or, or or angle them to the boards but out in open ice where you'd really get hurt you couldn't you know you couldn't hit him he was so elusive he wasn't fast but he was quick he knew where the puck was going to go like a, a second or a second and a half before anybody else no matter where he went the puck would follow him or he would beat the puck to where it was Unreal. and Unreal. It, just a just a, oh yeah just a sixth sense about him that how no matter which way he turned, the puck would be there, and you know everybody played. He he taught me a lot. Is that you don't go where you want the puck. You go to the area where there's an open where there's open ice, and the puck will be there. You go to the opening. You you know no, nothing's materializing to the opening. He really looked at the game a different way than anybody else up until that point. Oh yes, by by far, by far. Now now you the game is so fast and it's moving. You know like. You know, there, there's no way that you can, you know, watch the puck anymore. It, it's just, it's going to be there. Put your stick on the ice. And the abilities that these players have nowadays, you know, the, the passing abilities, you know, the lofting of the puck, the, you know, the bouncing, you know, like to watch 
the NHL players take the puck off the boards is uncanny. You know, like no matter what angle it is or if it's coming up the backside or whatever, they've got a beat on it. You know, it's it's a they they've got to be good pool players. So on November 27th, you guys play the Birmingham Bulls, and there's a 17 minute power outage in the game. Mark and Gordy Howe both score two goals. You score your third goal of the year. I don't think any interview about the New England Whalers would be complete unless we talked about the Howes. Talk to me. Tell me, the Howe family, what were they like? The, you know, everybody heard about, you know, about Gordy and, you know, and, and Colleen, you know, and, and the two sons that don't touch Marty or Mark. Do really? Do not touch them or, or Gordy will be right there. You know, that, that was the, you know, the thing around the league. But in, nobody knew that both of those, Mark and Marty, could defend themselves. They didn't need Dad, you know, watching over their shoulder. Both of them were, had the ability to play, and they were both strong, strong kids. I was going to say, did they mesh in with the team well? Or I know Colleen at the time was looking for a movie deal for the guys. Was that ever a distraction? No, 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 no. They they mixed in very well. They they were players. They they wanted to play. You know, although Marty would rather be fishing than playing hockey, but <laughs> they, they they were they were good. They were very good hockey players, and they came every every day to play. And then they were good in the locker room, or good, you know, you know, on the plane, or or you know, out to supper and stuff. They, they would, you know, they weren't up on this little pedestal like everybody put them on. They were right, just like us. A few. Games go by. Uh, a few games later, you end up playing the uh, Russian, the Soviet national team, and you end up playing also the Moscow Dynamo in an exhibition game. I know you had two goals in that game. You had some international experience, but was it completely different? Or, or when the the European team started coming over, what was your first reaction to seeing their style of hockey? We, um, when I was playing in the University of North Dakota, we played in um, we played in um, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the Broadmoor, we um at the at the, at the uh, Broadmoor in, in Colorado, and we were playing against the the Red Army. I mean, it was their top team, and you know, we're that uh, was Team USA. You know that it was, but it was all college kids from you know five or six from the east, mm-hmm. and the you know the rest was from the west. You know, like North Dakota, Minnesota, Minnesota, Duluth, Denver. Um, Colorado College, and we were all put together in a Christmas tournament. And you watch these guys play. They they didn't come up the ice. They rolled up the ice. They they circled up the ice. There was there was no two defensemen and three forwards. It was five players playing as a team, as you know, coming up. And I, I can still remember that. What was it, Karmalov and Yakushev or whatever, coming up the one wing. And I watched him. I was on defense. I was playing right defense. He was coming up the left side, and I watched his eyes all the way up the ice. I was watching his eyes, watching what he was doing with the puck, and he never looked to his right. And I mean, all of a sudden, he just rifled a pass across right on the stick, and he was in. The guy, the guy took one step by our other defenseman, and he was in cold on the on the on the goaltender. And, and I know goddamn well he never looked over there. <laughs> So he knew exactly where they just almost played like a choreographed game where they knew where each other were at all times. Oh, exactly, exactly. And it didn't. It didn't have to be that player that he he was a left wing. The other guy was a right wing. It could be a center iceman or it could be a left defenseman. They were all intertwined with one another as one unit. January of this year, 
rolls around. And by this time, you've been on probably riding a lot of buses. The grind is on. You guys have got to be getting tired on the road. One thing that you were known for is being a member of the Coneheads on the bus. Do you recall the who the other Coneheads were? Uh, Jack Carlson and Steve Carlson. You nailed they it. Were, you know, the, the, the Carlson boys were, that's when, you know, after Minnesota, after Minnesota Saints had folded that year, and the Carlsons came to Hartford. And Jack Carlson actually was one of the original characters for Slapshot, but ended up missing the filming of it because I think he got called up. Did you ever talk to Jack well, about well, that? He was, yes, yes, yes. We were in the playoffs. And, you know, and Steve and Jeff Carlson, they were filming the thing in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It was Steve Carlson, Jeff Carlson, and Davey Hansen who were called the Killer Hansons. So there was there was only two of the Carlsons that skated on that. And, you know, they called them the, 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 like the three Carlson brothers. But the one was the Davy Hanson. Jack ends up getting traded to the Minnesota North Stars, which is an interleague trade, which you hadn't seen. What was the reaction around the league when you see a guy go from the WHA to the NHL on a trade? Um, good for him. You know, it was, you know, Jack and I had, you know, when I was in, um, where the hell was it? It was um, Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. Cape Cod Cubs, and Jack was in Johnstown. Okay. And you know the, how the movie, the, the slap shot comes out, you know, they, they come out. Yep. And they're skating with the big noses and the glasses and all this shit. Well, they had legit large, you know, ex- <laughs> <laughs> you know they're schnozzes anyway. But then they had these ugly-looking athletic glasses. that, And they all, I swear to God, the... Movie Slapshot was like one step down from the truth. You know, with the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, it was, well, I don't know about the cars and all that other stuff that they played in their rooms, but the rest of the stuff, you know, the, the little French goaltender and the, um, the, the, the buses, you know, with all your groupies and different things like that. It was actually, it was real close. When you're traveling on the road, does that become one of the movies of choice as you guys ride the bus? <laughs> no, no, it, it really didn't come. But it's a choice until I was actually out of the game. Oh. You know, until you know I was out of the game, and then it was just people. Can you believe that? How could they make a movie like that? There's no way that anybody could ever think. No, they couldn't think that up. It had to be the truth. You know, that's why <laughs> some of the stuff that you know, some of the stuff that was in that movie was was the actual truth. You know, they'd be. I know that people are you know far fetched and stuff. So, but but the story was the basics were there. Yes, yes, correct. It's uh, late January. You guys play the uh, Birmingham Bulls. What's it like traveling down to Alabama in the 70s and playing hockey down there? Well, I can tell you about, I don't know about playing the Bulls. You know, we, we had, it was another game, but when we went to Birmingham, Alabama, that was when disco was in, and they had some of the best disco bars. It was like, you know, Saturday Night Fever whenever we went to um, Birmingham. That the team put it this way. I don't know if anybody's ever said this or not, but the team took disco lessons. Really, during the week with um, when they went nights off and stuff like that, or whatever. The, the team would take. They had um, one of the wives had a friend who taught disco, and the the lady and her husband taught all the team disco lessons so that we could compete with some of the people down there, and you'd wear your um, Elton John shoes or your great big high darn shoes and your polyesters and your, you know, it's just jumpsuits and all this other stuff. It, it, it was a fashion contest. After the game, it was a fashion contest to go out to the disco. 
Who was the best New England whaler at disco? <laughs> I would say his name was Paul Hurley. He okay. was from Boston, and they called him Shooter. But it was Paul Hurley. He always he would go down in, in Boston. He would go before anybody dared to go down to the combat zone. Paul Hurley would go dress with his hat, his shades, his bell bottoms, his big old lapels on his shirts that, you know, if he went out in the windstorm, he'd probably corkscrew himself in the ground. You know, the lapels were so big. But it was, you know, the real hockey to me was uh, it was great. It, it was really, really, really great. It was, a, I guess, a, an awakening from northern Minnesota. Please tell me that Gordy Howe could get down in the disco. <laughs> no, that, 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 that Gordy, Gordy wouldn't go out. <laughs> Gordy stayed in his room. Gordy was a, a well-mannered young man. <laughs> How awesome is that story about the Hartford Whalers doing disco? I mean, really, it's just, I can only imagine these guys after a game showering, getting decked out in their bell bottoms and going out of all places though, Birmingham, like if he said he was going to New York City or Chicago or even L.A. or Washington, D.C., I'd be like, OK, I could see that. But Birmingham? I didn't think Birmingham was a real metropolis of fashion and dancing, but shows you what I know, right? Anyways, what a great story. I, I could just picture these guys getting out there and they walk in. They're probably half of them are stitched up and missing teeth, something just like out of Slapshot. And they're sitting here boogieing and getting down, showing people the moves. So what a great story from Alan. Please don't forget to check out part two of our interview with Alan, though, on Thursday. We talk more about the Hartford Whalers, his relationship with the city. We talk about him fighting Barry Melrose. Some other nice goodies are in there as well. So hope everyone's enjoying it. If you have any feedback or want to chat, brettsmall84 at gmail.com. You can contact us on Facebook, or you can also get in touch with us via Twitter at Snapshots In. Anyways, good luck. Have a good week. We'll check back in with you Thursday. Talk to you then.